Hey, thank you so much, Ben and worship team, for leading us. Really grateful to be led by such great people and led in such a great way. Well, if you are joining us this morning, you are jumping into the third part of a seven-chapter book, and so you've missed the first two chapters, which for some of you is totally fine, but for the rest of you, you might think, hmm, what have I missed? This series is called God for the Grown-Up, and we are in part three of a seven-part series. And so I encourage you, if you're interested, to go back and read chapters one and two or go online and listen to where we were at. This series, as the subtitle will say, is trying to point out that we can have a childlike faith without having a childlike God. And this is uh, built off of this main idea that one of my professors in Dallas Seminary used to tell us all the time, Dr. Jeff Bingham, he would say the most important thought you can ever think is the thought you think of when you think of God. And if that's true then how you conceive of God and how you think of him will guide every other action in your life, every relationship, every business decision, and every decision about your future will be impacted by how you see God. So we tried to make this case last week that there are times when we um, see God incorrectly or incompletely. We talked about several different ways last week we did that. This week, I have an impossible challenge in front of both me and you. The impossible challenge is I'm going to try to communicate to you who God is. Six simple words or less. It's an impossible challenge for a couple of reasons, at least three reasons. The first reason this is an impossible challenge is because of me. I have a limited vocabulary. I have limited brain power, depending upon the hour of the day that fluctuates. And I have limited experience to try to take the scope of God and bring him down to communicate to you. That's the first challenge. first challenge is me. The second challenge, if I can be honest and be non-offensive, the second challenge is you. Because we share the same limitations, don't we? But your problem is greater than mine in that you have to listen to me. (laughs) You have to hear of God through this personality and through this lens. So you have a greater challenge than I do in that way. And the third challenge is what I want to demonstrate with you. And so I want to do a little little group dynamic again this Sunday. And I'd like to engage you on this for a minute because I want to demonstrate the third challenge and explain the third challenge of trying to explain God. So if you're up for it, ladies and gentlemen, I have two different assignments for you depending on which category you fit in. So if you're a lady or a young lady, what I would like you to do is in a moment, I'd like you to turn to the person next to you, whoever that is, someone near you, and explain to them what exactly is a man. Gentlemen, I'd like you to explain to someone near you what exactly is a woman. Please, no fist fights in the crowd. Okay, go. <clears throat> Okay, was that fun? Did they get it right? Men, were you, did, did you have some woman explain to you who you are? And ladies, did you have some man explain to you who you are? Okay, now if that was fun, here, just one more, one more, one more. Because if you're a woman and you heard an explanation of who you are from a man, you need to correct them. So 
ladies, now explain what a woman really is to the person you just talked to. And men, you explain what a man really is to the person you just talked to. So flip it up, same thing, just another five, ten seconds here, go. Okay, all right. I'm hearing some very interesting chatter around here. Very good. Did we get it solved? I think, I think we got something solved. I would be very interested to hear your reactions to that and your answers. So here's, here's the deal. I hope that went well for you, by the way. <laughs> the third challenge this morning, not only is me and you, the third challenge is how do you even begin to talk about something so big? as a man or a woman, something so complex as that? How do you even begin to talk about something so complex as God? When I ask you in a moment, it's totally unfair, totally unfair, to turn to someone near you and explain what a man or a woman is. Totally unfair. Some of you begin by talking about characteristics. Some of you begin by talking about the work that you do as a man or a woman. Some of you begin by talking about what someone once said a man or a woman was but none of those is really complete. Like if I were to come to you this morning and say, let me tell you the characteristics of God, and let's start by understanding God by learning his characteristics, it would be akin to taking God in the Petri dish, or in the, excuse me, maybe not the Petri dish, but dissecting a frog in science class, and let's just dissect God and look at all the characteristics of him. Well, just by dissecting a frog, you don't really know what a frog is. You know the parts of the frog, but that doesn't really describe the whole frog. The same with God. I can't really just come to you and describe the characteristics. The list could go on and on. God is righteous. He is holy. He is other. He is omni. You fill it in. Omnipresent. Omniscient. All-knowing. He's everywhere. I could keep talking about the characteristics of God. But at the end of that, number one, you might be falling asleep. Number two, where would that leave you except with a scientific understanding of the characteristics of God? Just like I can't explain a man or a woman just simply by using the characteristics. Secondarily, I can't explain God simply by the works of God, saying that God is a creator or sustainer of life, because how fair would it be to turn to a woman and say, well, here's what a woman is. She's one who does these things. Or a man, oh, he's one who does these things. Well, not not exactly true, not complete. Nor can I really come to you and just collect all the wisdom of the ages and, and line up some smart theologians and say, this is what smart people who are now dead or living, whatever, have said about God, and let's collect all the wisdom we can and put together a bunch of good quotes and give to you a picture of who God is. How am I going to do that? How helpful would that really be? And so my problem, the third challenge is, where do you even begin by talking about who in the world God is? And yet we sit here and we want to know who in the world is this God that we want to connect with? If the church is about connecting people to God and hoping to connect people to God, who in the world is this God that we want people to connect to? If it was easy enough for me last week to begin to deconstruct some false views of God, then I better be able to reconstruct and put in its place something that is actually helpful for you and for me as we think about connecting to God. And That's my goal this morning. My approach this morning is twofold. Number one, I want to let God speak for himself through his word. And what we believe here at GPC is that when we read the Bible, we're not just reading the words that someone wrote, but that God, through the Holy Spirit, inspired 
the Bible to be written is God is the author ultimately behind the text. And so when we read the words of the scriptures, we're actually reading God's words to us through the personality of the individual author. And so we want to go to the Bible for our authority. Well, let God speak for himself. But secondarily, I want to, I want to go and give you a picture of God that essentially is so simple that you can remember it just like you can do a word association with some very historical figures. What I mean by that is this. If I tell you the name Benedict Arnold, one thing comes to mind for most of you. Number one, if you're younger than 10, you're like, I have no idea what you just said. But if you're older, you're like, traitor. We, we know that. If you were to go into a place of business and they say, hey, I need your John Hancock right here, you know immediately what they need. Because one main idea is associated with John Hancock, even though he did more than write his name large. Even though Benedict Arnold did more than betray the country. If I were to tell you George Washington, you would immediately think first president of the United States. He did more before and after that, but that is what we associate George Washington with. Just like we take those names and associate one main idea with each one of those, so too I want you to leave and associate one big main idea with God. I will not dissect all the characteristics of God. I will not dissect all the works of God. I will not give to you a bunch of quotes from smart theologians about who God is. All of those are valuable and worth study. This morning, I want you to leave with a big, simple picture about who God is. Fair enough. What are you going to say? Fair enough. Okay. With that being said, I'd like to invite you to turn in a Bible that you may have, or if you don't own a Bible, there's a Bible in the pew around you. That's our gift to you if you don't own a Bible. I invite you to turn to a small little letter that was written by a guy named John, and it's the first epistle or the first um, letter of John. So we're going to 1 John. 1 John chapter 4 is where we're going to end up. Uh, You can find that near the end of the New Testament, near the end of the Bible. You can also look in the table of contents to find that, um, if you would like. That's helpful to you. 1 John chapter 4. And you should know this. um, I I really, literally do hope that this morning you will leave with a three-word definition of God, and then three words that describe that definition. So really, this morning, I'm going for six words, and here's the funny part. They're all one syllable. So if you can leave here with six one-syllable words about God, I I think that that will give you a picture of who God is and be able to, to be a healthy starting point for further understanding and connection with this God. But I want to allow God to speak for himself. So here we go in 1 John chapter. Four. And as we're reading this, you should know we're jumping into a, a context, something. First John didn't just appear out of nowhere. Uh, John was a follower of Jesus Christ, and he is writing at a time when the church, just try to remember this for a minute, the church hasn't been established yet for really any period of time. So he's writing to new Christians. We don't know really who all they are, but he's writing to new Christians. And they're trying to figure it out, and they're getting it they're getting challenged. Like They have people who are teaching them falsely, and John calls them out. And so John is writing almost like a, like a kind of a grandfather or a wise sage kind of perspective of saying, hey, young church, put aside 
all the false views you're hearing about God like. Let me snap you back into the truth. Let me give to you the truth about who God is. And this is what John is writing about. And he's writing to people who are wrestling with people who are trying to teach them different things about wisdom, about how to connect to God and who God is. And John begins at a very practical theological level, very practical level. And he begins by thinking about how in the world do we relate to one another? Young church. What is it that should mark you, young church, as different from other people? If Jesus really came and you're really a Christ follower, a young church, what is it that should mark you? Not just what you think about God, but how you interact with each other should be qualitatively different than other people. And that is driven by your awareness of who God is. And so John is writing in this way. He's saying, I want you young church, to be qualitatively different and to have your behavior toward one another reflect a deeper understanding of the character of the God that you say you serve. And this is what he's writing about to this young church. And so we're jumping into the middle of that letter in 1 John chapter 4. We're going to roll right into verse 7 and we're going to get right into the definition of God immediately. He says in verse 7, Dear friends, let us... Love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. And whoever does not love does not know God because, and here's our three-word definition, because God is love. That's it. Thanks for coming this morning. Because God is Love. Of all the things that John could write here, it is instructive to see what he actually does write here. John could have written, God is truth. God is holy. God is righteous. God is all-knowing. God is all-powerful. God is just. God is patient. God is kind. God is a righteous judge. He is a father. He could have written a lot of things. Agreed? All of those things are true still of God. But of the one word that John could use to do word association with the early church to keep snapping them back to appropriate behavior and to understanding who God is, of the one word that he could choose, he chose God is love. Not God is angry. Not God is judge. Not even God is truth. God is love. Very significant choice that John makes. God is love. Now, here's the question. John, if God is love, that sounds really good. That sounds like something I learned in Sunday school. What does that mean when you say that God is love? What does that mean? I'm glad you asked. So John continues to write. And he continues to write after verse 8 into verse 9. It's like, how do I see this working? And here's what John says. This is how God showed his love among us. And then he gives a clarification. Look, he says, He sent his one and only Son into the world that we might live through him. This is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Let's stop it right there. This is what John says. He said, I'm telling you, God is love, 
And as you struggle to figure out what it means to be the church, this young church, in a world in which you are creating something brand new, you're struggling to figure that out. As you think about that, I want you to remember the most practical example that I can think of, thinks John, that, that I can give to you as an example. What I mean that God is love is not a Hallmark card or a Hallmark movie. It's not something that's going to make you necessarily cry at the end. It may not even make you feel good. In fact, this love involves torture and pain and death. This is a love that is deeper than maybe what you think. Let me clarify that this love of God is demonstrated most clearly through the cross of Jesus Christ. In a very practical way, God sends his only son, Jesus, to this planet on your behalf and on my behalf so that I might have eternal life. This is a picture of God of the word association that we should always snap to when we think of God. Look at the words in verses 9, 10, and into even 11, but really 9 and 10. He says, this is how God showed his love among us. This is further clarifying how this love works. He says, he sent. I'm just going to pause. I'm going to go word for word, so it may feel like stop and go traffic, but I want you to see the words of the text, okay? He says, he sent Implication there, meaning that God is the one who is initiating or starting the love toward us. He is the sending one of this love. He sent, continue in verse 9 to me, he sent his one and only. Uh, that is a, a Greek word, uh, monogeneo, meaning one and only. The, the only, like mono, you know, one, not duo, two. The, the unique one of God. The, the, the one who of which there is no other. Like, I don't have a spare son sitting here, and I'm going to send you one that doesn't matter. Like, that's not the way it was with God. He's like, I'm going to send to you the one and only precious son that I have. So what is the nature of the love that God has for his people? It is a sending love. I'm giving it first, and I'm giving to you something so immensely valuable I cannot replace it kind of love. The one and only son. Then look at the text again. Into the world, like, I'm coming to where you live, I'm coming to your part of the world, I'm coming to your neighborhood, I'm going to limit myself to be landing, if you will, where you are, like, I'm coming to you, you don't have to come to me, it's, my door is not open to you, I'm coming to your door to open your door, like, I'm coming there, into your world, that, and then here's, that we, that we might live through him. The focus of God's love is you and me. The focus of God's love is the sinner, is the person who has already walked from God, who has done things against God's standards. And it is that person that God says, I want to come to your front door, open it, and let me in because I've got something for you, the most precious gift I can give to you of my son, that we as the beneficiaries of God's love, God's love might live, the text says, that God's love is life-giving and joyful, truthfully, that it gives life to people who otherwise would have death through Jesus. Verse 10, this is love, not that we love God, but that, then here I underline this again, but that he loved us. Again, God is the one coming, that he loved us first and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. That God's love is so strong and so compelling that he came toward us. Romans 5, that you know, is one of my favorite verses, that while we were still in our sin, Christ died for us. If you want to know, young church, John writes, if you want to know what God is like, if you want to associate a word with him, 
Associate love with him, please. God is the definition of love. And if you want to know what love looks like, please look no further than the cross and all of what happened there that God initiated on my behalf while I was still far from him and rejecting him and pushing against him while I was still doing all that. He came to me where I was to my front door with his most precious gift, and he said, I'm here to give you life. It's amazing. Now, I want to go a little bit further with you. God is love, but I want to add three more words to that because I think these three words will help push out the implications that God is love. They may seem weird to you at first, but I'll try to explain them, and I hope that'll make sense to you. Um, uh, they're they're one-syllable words that I think takes this idea a little bit further. God is love, but unless we think more about this, we will often just default to our experience of love. Oh, God is love like my dad loved me, or maybe like my dad didn't love me. God is love like I love my spouse, or like my spouse didn't love me. It's not really very loving. God is love, not just God is love, but God is love, let me add the, this here. God is love near and far. God is love near and far. This may sound strange to you at first glance, and that's okay if it does. I want to explain it to you a little bit. God is love near and far in, in this way. God came near to us through his son, Jesus Christ. He came near. He's here, right? He's present. He took on human flesh. God is love near to us. But God is also love far. God cannot rescue us if he's in the flood with us, right? You've seen the pictures of flooded cities after a hurricane or what have you, and you have rescue workers coming along in the boat. Well, they're in the boat, and the people who need rescued are not in the boat. But if everybody's in the floodwaters, you can't rescue somebody else if you're also in the same predicament. So God is far in that he's removed from our sin. He's removed from what we need to be saved from. He is near to us in the rescue operation, if you will, but he is also far from us, and he has the capacity to save, and his love extends that way. This is, by the way, the way all good relationships work, isn't it? Even relationships that we have with one another. When we have a good relationship, it is both near and far. When we're struggling with whatever, or we want to share a joy or a special moment, we're going to call, we're going to text, we're going to snap somebody, whatever it is, whatever way we connect, we're going to get near to somebody, and we enjoy being near with them. Like, it's fun to be together. And in that, we share special moments. And sometimes those moments are so good that those moments actually transcend reality. You ever been at a, a retreat or whatever, and you, you find all of a sudden you're in the middle of like a giggle fest? Right? Like, you just can't stop laughing. And it's like, where is this coming from? I, can't just, I just can't stop laughing. And all of a sudden, all the, like, all the struggle and pain of whatever you brought in is just gone because you're like transcended to a new place. You don't even know how you got there. You ever have a special moment with your spouse or you're over dinner or you're walking on the beach or whatever, and it's like all the worries just kind of wash away and you are taken somewhere else. And you're transcended to a new place. Or you just break down in tears with somebody because they finally understand the pain that you're in. You connect with someone else who has a loss like you do. You can finally go somewhere that feels far from where you are, but is good. Every good relationship has this. Theologians call it imminence and transcendence, being close or near and being far transcendent. God's love is both near and far, and here's what that means. When you think of God's love near, here's what I mean by that, that God being near means he can use what is near us to accomplish his purposes. And this is why I want to bring these things up. God can use what is near to us to accomplish his purposes. The reason this matters 
that God's love is near and far, is that I want us to understand the work of God as happening right around us. God is here and present. Let me flesh this out a little further. God uses what is near to us to accomplish his purpose. He uses your work. Some of you are in the healthcare field. When you treat people, you give them medicine, you provide a treatment for them, you're doing, in a way, a work of God. You're providing for them healing that, yes, at a macro level, God provides healing, but at a micro level, you are the instrument of God in that case to provide healing to somebody else. Like, that is what you're doing. This is the work of God through you. If you're in the construction field, you are providing for people a safe place to live in which they can go to a home or a place of residence and function and work in safety and in comfort, which is a, an example of the provision of God. It's not just you working separately from God. In that case, God is working through you to do that. If you're in the education field, you are doing a work of God in providing growth for these young students and learners in your classroom. That is what you do. If you're a parent, you are doing the work of God in nurturing the heart of your children. Through you, God works. He is near to us in this way. Your work is not just something you do out there and you come on Sunday morning to worship or whatever. Your work provides for people, even if you're a business owner, provides for people employment and, again, security and safety, a place to be safe in this world. God works through you in his nearness and imminence to be the hands and feet, as the church says, of Jesus. And I would also say God works through people who don't even know him, people who reject him, who turn from him. God still works through people. God works not only through your work, but also through his creation. You ever take a walk in the woods or a stroll on the beach or a run through the park or a bike ride through the country and been like, that was good. Why? Because you've seen the creative work of God. Who is near? The, The fact that the sun is shining this morning is a gift to me. The fact that God has created this world is an example of his nearness. This isn't just a self-help idea of, hey, why don't you get outside and get some fresh air? It'll make you feel better. But in getting out and getting out into the world, you see the nearness of God, and this helps you connect with who God is. God also works in this way through hope realized. If you ever talk with anyone and all of a sudden they went from like feeling like, I have no way to be forgiven, to recognizing the cross of Jesus Christ does this. Like, this is what the gospel is. If you ever encountered someone who kind of gets it for the first time, like, what? You mean I'm I'm forgiven? Like, do you mean the grace of God covers me this far? Like, what a relief that is. Are you saying there's actually hope for people like me? Like, even when I continue to roll into and fall into the same things that I said last month I would stop doing. Are you telling me that there's hope for that? And those experiences, those moments of recognizing again the the hope of Jesus coming to save us while we were still sinners that changes your life is the nearness of God in your experience. That God is love, and in the nearness of God, He is close to you. And He uses us to communicate and love and care for one another. That God is near to us in that way, through your work, through His creation, through hope realized, and through other means. But this is the nearness of God. God is love near to us, right here. But God is far. 
as well. God being far means that he will always be higher than his creation. God will always be higher than his creation. We are never going to be God or like God in that way. We are like him in that we are made in his image, but that's about where that stops. God is far in that he will always be higher than his creation. For example, our limitations will always be real. We will never be able to express in our language the fullness and the scope of God. We are never going to be him. He is always going to be separate from us. That's just going to be the way that that will always be. We are limited. He is not. It also means this, that God alone saves. That when we experience salvation, we have not experienced salvation because we have made our way to salvation ourselves. God saves alone. Case closed on that one. And we didn't really contribute to that. We didn't really help that along. God alone saves. God alone. He is far. He's transcendent. He is able to rescue because he's not in it in that way. He's not in the sin. He's not in the failure and in the junk. God alone saves and he's far like that. It also means this, that God still does transcendent work. What I mean by that is this, as we tend to look around us, we don't ever want to be in the business of saying, man, we're done with God doing miracles in the world in which we live. That time has passed. It's in the Bible. It's no longer now. It's short-sighted and incomplete to think that way. God still does transcendent work. We don't need to chase down the miraculous in order to prove God's existence. We don't need to chase it down. But nor do we need to be afraid of it as if somehow it's going to blow our comfort zone or rock our world if we see or experience the miracle of God. God still does transcendent work. And because of this, God is in the business of being able to correct and rebuke and change and move us because he's far, he's removed from us. So God's love is near and far. He's near to comfort, to save, to protect, to work through you and me, work through his creation, through hope realized. But he also is a God who is far, who is able to provide a perspective that we alone cannot provide. And so who is God? God is love near and far. Let me ask you this question. Is there any greater motivation for revival of the human heart than the love of God well expressed? Is there any greater motivation for the revival of the human heart than the love of God well expressed? In other words... When you and I experience deep kindness, we are moved to want to experience more. When you and I encounter someone who is so deeply gracious to us, I want to know you more. Like, can we have lunch again, please? I want to, I want to hang out with you Again, because you have demonstrated to me that people actually care and that my story actually matters. Can we please, can we please talk more? 
No one else has ever leaned into my story like you have, and you took that risk. No one else has ever cared about my studies the way you have. No one else has cared about my family history the way that you have. No one else ever actually wrote me a note. Is that how much they appreciate me? Wow. You did that? Like, Is there any greater thing that stirs the human heart to hope again than feeling the love of God well expressed? This is why the kindness of God leads us to repentance. Not the judgment of God, but the kindness of God draws, warms the heart to repentance. Which is why... John, when he writes, he says, love one another. Love one another. Love. Why? Because your love to one another is the expression of God near. This is why Jesus, when asked by the teacher of the law, teacher, what is the greatest commandment? He says, first of all, love God with all you have. Second, love your neighbor as yourself. See, God is love. He is love near and he is love far. Able to provide what we cannot provide in the world in which we live. And this is why John, when he writes to the early church, he wants to snap them back and he says, young church, please, As much as you think about Benedict Arnold as a traitor, and George Washington as a president, and John Hancock as a signature, let this guide you as you think about God. God is love. There's a lot of other things worthy of study on God. But young church, please know this. God is love, and he's love near. He's close, and he's far. Now, If you're sitting here this morning and you're thinking with me, you have at least one problem. At least one, maybe more. We have a major problem. If we take what I just taught this morning, we take it out of the greenhouse of the church and plant it in the real world. And it's this problem right here. If God is love, near and far, why is there so much suffering and evil in this world? terrible definition of God if you cannot explain why in the world would a loving God allow all the things that he allows. If you want to talk about that, join us here next Sunday. That is what next Sunday is about. How in the world does this loving God work in a world where there is massive evil and suffering? God for the Grown Up Part 4 next week. Will you pray with me? Our good God and Heavenly Father, thank you that we can be together this morning and consider again who you are and try to get a clear picture of how you have made us and how you have come to us through the gospel, through the hope of Jesus Christ, demonstrating your intimate, sacrificial transcendent love to us to pull us out of our human condition into hope for eternity. As we walk into this week, Father, for those who this morning are saying they're followers of Jesus Christ and and want to model this same love, give us courage to do that, I would pray. 
that we would love one another well and warm the hearts of those near us with kindness and compassion, favor, endurance, clarity, and courage. That we can be people who love well because of how we have seen you show your love to us. Keep us snapped into that picture of who you are. Father, for the struggles that we have with how this actually works, give us clarity on that as we approach that next week. We thank you for saving us from our sin and pulling us into a hope with you for eternity. And we'll pray this in Jesus' name.